welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I'm Carl Stevens, I'm the priest. And I am Daniel Bogard, the rabbi. And we are uh, podcasting together in person today from St. Andrew's Episcopal Church in Evanston. I'm worried that it's going to be hard to say snarky things when I have to look you in the face afterwards. Well, I, it's never stopped you before. It's a good point. Um, and we are, we are actually joined in the library of St. Andrew's by our good friends Katrina and Lisa and Linda, um, who they're deciding whether they want to speak on this podcast or not. But they will pipe up if if... They have things that they want to say. Is that would that be correct? Sure. Okay. <laughs> I think that counts as speaking for the podcast. Yeah, right yeah, there. You're, you're on it now. The yeah. Yeah. Um, so we have reached chapter twenty-six in this long read through Exodus, which means we are still in the middle of all the description of the implementa of the tabernacle. Yes, I was talking to my wife about this today, where we are, and she's also a rabbi. Uh, and we we're talking about how when you read the Torah portion. Uh, during the regular Jewish reading cycle, you know, even if you divide it into thirds, some communities do that, you still can escape some of these chapters. Oh. Uh, right? You don't have to tie. If you're reading chapters 26, 27, and 28, you don't always have to talk about 26. Okay. Uh, you, you can't escape the way that we're doing it. No, we can't escape it. Um, but actually, I don't think we really want to because... As we established last week, we both really like worship and liturgy, and this is and this is what this is all about. Frankly, this is the portion where um, the law has been handed out in Mount Sinai. The first part of the law was really about ethics and morals and how people should treat each other, and then there followed uh, the strange little. Um, interstitial episode where Moses is somehow back down at the bottom. Interstitial, I like this word. Yeah, thanks. Um, he's down at the bottom of Mount Sinai again, and then we have gone into the description of how the tabernacle should be built. And the tabernacle is um, a kind of movable tent. It's more than a tent. A movable compound. It's a movable temple. Temple. Is really what it is. Uh, the Hebrew word for it is mishkan. Uh, which I don't know why we went with the word tabernacle, because I don't know the tabernacle means more to us than Mishkan. Huh. Uh, but it is a traveling temple. Uh, and in fact, the, the model of the temple that eventually is built uh, in Jerusalem, the first temple, the second temple, comes from the Mishkan itself. So this uh, this tabernacle houses the Ark of the Covenant, which has the tablets of the law in it. So the tabernacle has the ark within it, which will house the tablets of the commandment. Right. Uh, so, yeah, we're really thinking, if you imagine large tent, uh, and we can put a picture up on the website uh, of this for everyone, uh, but if you imagine a, a large tent in the middle of an even larger courtyard, and the courtyard would be sort of fenced off in some way or another, uh, inside that tent, then there would be an inner sanctum uh, covered by the parochet, the uh, uh, curtain, and inside of there would be what comes to be known as the Holy of Holies when it's actually in the temple itself. Uh, and within the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. And, and within that would be the tablets. That is until the Ark goes missing, right? At that a is certain until point the Ark in goes history, missing. there's nothing in the Holy of Holies. Sitting in a warehouse, presumably somewhere, yeah, right? This to, is to believe the Raiders of the Lost Ark, yeah. Um, 
is there animal sacrifice also happening in the tabernacle? Absolutely. Just Absolutely. Like You're seeing a the full cultic uh, worship that's happening throughout this that really, we imagine at least, is not terribly different from what ends up happening in the temples themselves. Okay. So we have the chosen people wandering through the wilderness, and now they're being told to build the thing. Presumably, they've been carrying the materials to build the thing all along, or else yes. where would they have come from? That will certainly be one of our questions. Yeah. Right? And then once they build the thing, they not only have to keep carrying it through the wilderness, but they also have to be looking out for like lambs without blemish that they can sacrifice, and white doves and things like that. All yes. the sacrificial needs that the temple in Jerusalem will eventually have. Yes, there is some understanding that the Israelites are traveling with lots of cattle. Lots I mean, of livestock. Right? In fact, we yeah. know that we have lots of cattle, because that was one of the Midrashim we looked at. Was, right. uh, why is it that they're complaining about wanting food when they have cattle around them that they could slaughter? Right. That's right. So these people wandering in the wilderness are really... Um, they're like a, a band of nomads with all their livestock and all their herding and everything else. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and if we're to believe the numbers in the Torah, we're told 600,000 men. So we're talking 2 million people. We're talking a Cincinnati metro area traveling around. Right. Through the wilderness. And, and because the wilderness is actually not that large, they could have actually gotten to the chosen land, you know, eventually, right? The promised land. Um, they could have gotten there pretty quickly, so they're probably backtracking and going over this land yeah, quite back a bit and forth as they and back go. And forth. Right, right, and running into some of the same kings and things whose land they're trampling through as they go. Yep. Okay, so there, there's all the backstory. Uh, so we're we're just going to shoot right into the beginning of the chapter. It's really nice. We're pretending like the reason we're going on and on with the backstory is that we have guests joining us, rather than just that we always go on and on about a backstory. We, all, yeah, we always is, do go on and on. Uh, well, we need to catch ourselves up. Yes. It's a short-term memory loss on my part. I don't know what your excuse is. <laughs> and, um, oh, and I should say, dear listeners... That the great uh, priest of St. Andrews, Father uh, John, I'm going to mask your last name, Abaje, has just joined us too. So he will be piping in whenever he wants to as we go through this. So we're just starting. Okay. So, Daniel, do you want to read first? Sir. Sure. Okay. Uh, as for the Mishkan, the tabernacle, make it of ten strips of cloth. Make these a fine twisted linen of blue, purple, and crimson yarn with a design of cherubim, those angels we talked about last week, yep. uh, worked into them. The length of each cloth shall be 28 cubits, and the width of each cloth shall be 4 cubits. All the cloths do have the same measurements. Five of the cloths shall be joined to one another, and the other five cloths shall be joined to one another. Make loops of blue wool on the edge of the outermost cloth of the one set, and do likewise on the edge of the outermost cloth of the other set. Make 50 loops on the one cloth, and 50 loops on the edge of the end cloth of the other set, the loops to be opposite one another. And make 50 gold clasps, and the couple the clasps to one another, with the clasps clasps so that the tabernacle becomes one whole. Okay, so what are all these numbers about, Daniel? Yeah, we've got a lot of description, right? So, yeah. so I think the first question is, why are we hearing this, right? And one answer is probably that most of us don't end up hearing this when we show up at synagogue or at church. Right. Uh, this, this is not one of the favorite chapters of uh, liturgy selection. It's safe to say it's left out of the lectionary, I think. Left uh, out of the lectionary, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, in the Jewish world, you don't get to skip it. Uh, instead, you know, 
people go to the bathroom. You, know, you got three hour services, you know, you got to come in and out. It's the time you find someone to go kibitz with. Take a little nap. You know, there's a tradition in some Orthodox shuls, usually not during the reading from the Torah, but from the prophets, uh, that people, people meet in the hallway for a little bit of schnapps or scotch or something, uh, which always makes the stories, I guess, a little more exciting. So this is a seventh inning stretch of the seventh uh, inning the stretch. Yes. So what, what are we supposed to make of this? Uh, I bet somebody had thought long and hard about all those numbers and why they're there. So, yeah, so we, we have all sorts of descriptions in the Midrash. But I guess the, the bigger question for me, too, is what are we supposed to do with this, right? Oh. Because y- you can understand why it's there in terms of these people needed these descriptions so that it could be built properly. But why is it there for us? Why am I supposed to care? I don't know. I'm mystified. Any any ideas around the table? People are shaking. Oh, no, <laughs> so let's look at a midrash here from Midrash Hagadol. Uh, you want to take this, Carl? Oh, sure. Uh, or Linda, do you want to read it? The ten multicolored tapestries in two groups of five each represent the ten commandments engraved on two tablets. The eleven sheets of goat hair sewn together in groups of five and six. Which, by the way, I have the sense that goat hair maybe had a more luxurious ring to it in the ancient world than it does to us today. It was the uh, cashmere of the moment. Yeah, no, right? I mean, we're talking about something fancy, but I hear goat hair and it doesn't sound... No, it sounds like something you would wear for penitential reasons. Yeah, I'll, right? I'll take, you know, wool instead, cotton, yeah. yeah. The 11 sheets of goat hair sewn together in groups of five and six represent the five books of Moses. What we call the Torah. And the six orders of the Mishnah. Which is the root of the oral Torah. Well done with the pronunciation. Yeah. Um, finish, Linda, and then let's ask what the, that means, yes. the root of the oral Torah. The folded sheet represents the Talmud, which enfolds and defines the Torah. The 50 clasps represent the 50 days from the exodus to the giving of the Torah. I'm just saying, Carl, she hasn't done it before, and I, I think her Hebrew is starting to rival yours her here. Hebrew is better than mine, but um, that's not surprising, really. Uh, okay, so what do you mean the, the Mishnah is the root of the Torah? So the, the main myth, and we've talked about this idea of myth before, as being not a story that's not true, but a story that tells you who you are and where you came from and how you're supposed to live your life. The, the main myth of Judaism today is this idea that when the Torah was given, when the five books of Moses are given on Mount Sinai to Moses, that there's also an oral tradition that happens as well, presumably happening in between these chapters that we're reading right now. Uh, that oral tradition is passed from Moses to Joshua, Joshua to the elders, the elders to the prophets, the prophets to the rabbis, and then it's transmitted rabbinically in every generation. Hmm. Uh, But around the year 200 CE, or AD, if you prefer that counting, uh, the Romans had destroyed all of Jerusalem, and there was a real fear that this tradition was going to be lost. Hmm. Uh, And so one of the greatest minds of the generation, a man named Yehuda Hanasi, Judah the Prince, Uh, gathers together all of the greatest rabbis and compiles everything that they know about the oral Torah. Uh, And that is called the Mishnah. Uh, And that has six different sections in it, which is where we get the number 11. If you add the five books of Moses and the six books of the Mishnah, or the six tractates of the Mishnah, 
uh, we get the 11 goat's hair cloths. Okay. So that's a little bit like um, at the end of the Gospel of John, um, John says, there were many things that happened too numerous for me to tell you now. And then just lets it hang out there. <laughs> like, wow, that's quite an um, ending. I think... I think both speak to something that is probably just generally true of human life, is that all this stuff happens to us. Some of it gets written down, but a lot of it is just, yeah, yeah we're trying to understand it, and we're telling it to other people, but, yeah. Uh, okay, so we have the Mishnah, we have the Talmud. What does the 50 class represent the 50 days from the Exodus to the giving of the Torah mean? So it's actually the time we're about to enter right now. Uh, from the end of, pa- excuse me, from the second day of Passover, right after the first night Seder, uh, you begin what's called the counting of the Omer. It's actually a biblical requirement that you count the days from Passover until Shavuot, the uh, uh, holiday of weeks, it's called uh, when it's translated. But it's really the holiday that commemorates the giving of the Torah. Hmm. Uh, in the idea of this period, this counting of the Omer, the counting of the days between these two holidays, is that Passover represents freedom. It represents a moment of total liberation. But Shavuot, which is Sinai, which is the giving of the Torah, represents recommitting ourselves to something higher and something bigger and something more significant. And so the whole time period is supposed to be a reflection on moving ourselves from a focus on our own personal freedom towards a focus on our commitment to those around us and the world around us and our purpose in being. Um, and those are the 50 days. That's beautiful. So there's something really kind of greater than freedom um, in a way. Freedom, freedom for Judaism and for Jewish thought is not... A goal, it's a tool. So what matters is what use you put your freedom to. Yeah, it's an important tool, but the point of life is not to be free. The point of freedom is to create the proper life for people. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I think we can go back and answer your question. Like, why does this matter to us as we read it, right? What I hear is several things. I hear that... Um, in this description of the temple, there is um, a statement about that which is written and that which is spoken that says that both things are equally important. Hmm. Um, and that, and I mean, I think as a Christian, you know, in church, a lot of our liturgy is written down. We read it from a book, but there are equally important things that are going on throughout the course of a service, say. So. Everything from the way the church looks, the stained glass windows, the way the cross looks, all the kind of sensory participation that people have. Um, Then there are the gestures of the priest. And then there are moments where, I don't know, John, have you ever spilled the communion wine? (laughs) Uh, I know someone who has, but it's not me. I'm getting nervous just thinking about that. Uh, Now now I'm going to be nervous all this week. (laughs) Well, this it, is the wrong week to ask. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, the reason I ask is because you ever dropped the wafer before? Oh, of course. Oh, the host? Yes, of course, yeah. of course. Um, in a seminary, there was a moment where, in the middle of the liturgy, uh, one of the acolytes who was a student spilled the communion wine, and the priest, instead of getting flustered about it, um, 
used it as a metaphor for like spilled blood. I, and I don't, I can't remember quite the words he used to do that, but he was basically like, "Oh no, no, don't be worried. This is what we're pointing to, right? Like this, this blood which we want to keep in this chalice." It's actually spilled all the time, right? And what are we going to do about that? And what are we going to think about that? And how does that come into our worship? Uh, now that uh, now that you're talking about what I understand, that yeah. blood that was spilled uh-huh. is actually the grace that we now celebrate as Christians. Yeah, that, that blood was shed for us for the atonement of our yeah. sins. Jesus became our sacrificial lamb. Right. That's what this whole week is all about. Right. Yeah. But now I'm going to be thinking about not spilling. (laughs) And and if any of your listeners have done it before, please call me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Commiserate. Call and reassure, John. So to to back up, I mean, I think what I'm hearing from all of our perspectives and all of our traditions here is that we agree that there is spirituality – that is found not just in the text, but in the actions and in the aesthetics, the way that our buildings look and the way that we conduct our rituals and mm-hmm. uh, what, you wear. what you wear. Yeah. And how you present all of these pieces, these have significance, right? Last week we were talking about priestly dress. Yeah. Actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now we're getting the dress of the tabernacle. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Since you talk about what you wear, one of the things I remember from seminary is do not let your altar guild get mad at you, and you must not get mad at them. <laughs> and I said, why? And you said, number one, you will not even remember the color of the vestment. They do. Yes. So you got to be... Yes. You got to make sure that you're in good terms with them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that has been my joke about these rules in Exodus all along. As I look at these chapters, and I think... Alter Guild should love these chapters, right? <laughs> because they not only tell you how everything should go so that nobody can mess with them, but it's in the Bible, right? <laughs> so you have to pay attention to it. So anyway. All right. Speaking of the Bible, shall we return to it? Yeah, let's do that. Uh, um, you want to read for us? We had seven. And you shall make good hair panels for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven panels you shall make them. The length of the one panel thirty cubit and a width of four cubits. So a cubit is about from your wrist to your elbow. We're not talking about enormous panels, but once you start sewing all these panels together, what we're doing is we're creating a tent. We're creating uh, a ritual place for all this to occur. Okay. So does anyone want to read on from verse 9? Chapter 26? Yeah, chapter 26, verse 9. Slowly. And... And you shall couple five curtains by themselves, and six curtains by themselves, and the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. So actually this doubling over, uh, the Midrash says that it's doubled over just partially uh, in the same way that a veil of a bride is doubled over sort of over the top part of her face traditionally, but not over the bottom. Hmm. Uh, And so this becomes one of the images that we get of the tabernacle that the tabernacle becomes, the Mishkan becomes 
uh, a bride in some <laughs> sense. Uh, it's the place of relationship with the divine. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. There's a verse in our history that talks about the bride, the bridegroom. Yeah. Christ says, the bridegroom? Yeah. So there's a, a big tradition in Christianity called bridal mysticism. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it stems from the Son of Sons, which comes a little further in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. Um, but uh, so in that... Jesus is seen as the bridegroom and the soul is seen as the bride. And the metaphor is that our relationship to God is like a love relationship between the bridegroom and the bride, mm-hmm. um, which is very beautiful. And, and then the of church course, is seen as the bride traditionally? Sometimes, yeah, the church is seen as a bride. Um, it, it can go in many directions. So nuns are often seen as brides of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I think, in so, at least some orders wear wedding rings to signify that. Interesting. Talking yeah. about wedding rings, it's like when I pray for people who are celebrating the anniversary of the holy matrimony, mm-hmm. I always pray that I pray that their union will continue to reflect the union between God, Yahweh, and His church. Yeah. Hmm. Right. Yeah. So we, we have this image too. Yeah, you uh, do. Yeah. yeah, very, very similar. Where uh, the Jewish people are seen as the bride huh. uh, to the divine. That's how the relationship becomes understood. And actually, the Sabbath, as it enters in on Friday nights, uh, is understood as a cosmic wedding between uh, the Jewish people and the divine. Uh, that also is a cosmic wedding between the feminine aspect of the divine and the masculine aspect. Yeah. Uh, there's a, another midrash that says that uh, right when Adam and Eve were leaving the garden, that the mothering aspect, the Shekhinah of the divine, could not bear to be without her children in the world. And so she went into exile in the world with humanity. And so on Shabbat, on Friday night, uh, the terrible twos of creation uh, are reunited and the divine has a new unity to it as well. Uh, again, all this is supposed to be metaphor, but isn't that pretty? It is, but what it reminds me of is the Holy Spirit. I mean, so you you, you have two and we would have three, the Trinity, because we would add huh. Jesus, the incarnate God, to it. But really, that sounds pretty Holy Spirit to me. So, you know, this tradition actually emerges out of the Jews of northern Spain who are living in a Christian context Ah. as opposed to the Muslim context. And most of the Jewish (laughs) Kabbalah, the the Jewish mystical tradition, comes out of that northern Christian context and then the experience of exile that happens afterwards. Uh, So it's not impossible that this is a conversation. These are our traditions speaking Mm -hmm. to each other across time. Yeah. Yeah, that is fantastic. (laughs) I love that. All right. So what did we get up to? Lisa, what did you read to? I think through nine. Yeah, I read nine. Okay. Someone want to pick up on ten? You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set. And 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. See, right, we try to read this like it has, like it's scripture. Yeah. 
Um, but sometimes it reads a little bit like a VCR repair manual, too. <laughs> right? like, uh, you've bought some goat hair materials from Ikea, and now you're getting ready to put it together. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm just looking for your holy Allen wrench. Um, <laughs> do you want to keep going? <laughs> okay. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze and put the clasps and the loops and join the tent together so that it may be one whole. The part that remains of the curtain of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. In this too, actually, the rabbis compare to a bride. It's like the dress trailing behind her. Oh, hmm. The train. The, tra- the train. That's what the yes. word is. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. The cubic on the one side and the cubic on the other side of what remains in the length of the curtain of the tent shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and that side to cover it. You shall make for the tent a covering of train of tanned rams, skins, and an outer covering of fine leather. And I have dolphin skins for that translation. I have goat skin. Yeah, so the real answer there is that we have no idea what this word in Hebrew means, and lots of people have different guesses. Oh, interesting. interesting. Right, when you just read it in English or you just read one translation, you totally miss these things. And I, I think we have a midrash here, which I really like. Because yeah. isn't this where we get to the word, uh, the mysterious word, takash? Yes, Tachash. Let's hear this midrash. It actually comes from the Jerusalem Talmud. Okay. Um, and it's, it's uh, referring to verse 14, and it says, The Tachash was a multicolored animal which was created specifically for the tabernacle, tabernacle and existed only at that time. Rabbi Hoshaya taught that it was a one-horned animal. So some of us say that it's dolphin skin, some of us say that it's goat skin, some of us say that it is unicorn leather. Right. So according to the Midrash, this is a moment where God creates a unicorn just so that the tabernacle, just so that the poor creature, frankly, can be butchered and, and yep. hide, it's high taken off and tanned and used in the tabernacle. <laughs> you know, it sort of reminds me, sometimes Midrash, I get the sense is like this, that, you know, there must have been one set of rabbis on this side who are screaming screaming that it's dolphin and the other side that are screaming that it's goat and then like a parent there's a rabbi in the middle who goes it's okay it's neither of them it was a unicorn it only existed then you'll never find it again stop arguing so this this leads to a wonderful unicorn legend that i just learned this week so um before we started recording daniel and i were were speaking during a service here at saint andrew and we were talking about how christianity also has you were built up during the service here when I was praying and reading. Yeah, so we were in the back whispering to each other and ignoring John. No, we were we were, we were the speakers. Um, but Christianity also has this tradition of it's not called midrash, but it's these legendary ideas. And over time, some of them developed around the Virgin Mary, who was thought to be so holy. And so there's this medieval legend that the Virgin Mary was walking in the woods, and she was so holy and virginal that when a doe, a female deer, saw her, it immediately became pregnant and gave birth to a unicorn. Wow. 
So, oh, wow. <laughs> that is the story. Like, unicorns come from the vision Virgin of the Virgin Mary. Mary herself. I hope you're not recording. Wow. Yeah. So I think we should just collect weird <laughs> unicorn stories. It's a new podcast. <laughs> it is a new podcast. So wow, uh, that's a story right there. Yeah. Well, anyway, it's really beside the point, but I do like these stories. <laughs> <laughs> if, if we got rid of all the beside the points, this would be a 15-minute podcast. That's true. We wouldn't have much of a podcast. Um, Verse 15. Okay. Do you want to keep reading, or does somebody else want to read? Okay, well. All right. You shall make upright frames of archaia wood for the tabernacle. Okay. So we're not going to let you get very far here. Yeah. Uh, How do you say that word? Acacia? Acacia wood? Acacia. Okay. So some of us might have a translation, though, that says cedar. Is that what you have, cedars? Cedar. Yeah. Uh, So we're not entirely sure. Again, this is one of those words that we don't know. Uh, but the other question is, regardless, if you've spent any time in the desert, particularly in the Sinai Desert, you'll know it's not famous for lots of trees. So the question is, where did they get this wood from? Yeah. Uh, and so we have three approaches to this question. Uh, Carl, you want to take us through the first of them? The, the Rashi? The Rashi, yeah. Okay, so he says, How did the children of Israel obtain wood in the desert? Rabbi Takuma explained, Our father Jacob foresaw with his Holy Spirit that Israel was destined to build a sanctuary in the desert. So he brought cedars to Egypt and planted them there and instructed his children to take them along when they left Egypt. I wanted to say it. I wanted to say it. You knew that Africa. story already? No, I didn't know that story, but Kashia, Akashia is in Africa. Ah, oh, interesting. Oh, I wanted go. to say that. That's how I know how to pronounce ah, it. Ah, uh-huh. yeah. Okay, so, but here we have Jacob, who's long, long ago, <laughs> having a lot of foresight about them needing this wood eventually. Yeah, yeah, right? I mean, there are all sorts of these great midrashim about Jacob, right? We get these stories about Jacob coming into Egypt to follow Joseph and how his bones are brought back yes, by yes. uh his ancestors when they leave Egypt. Uh, I think we looked at some of these Midrashim. We did, yeah. Where uh, there are legends that say he was enclosed in an iron coffin that was sent to the bottom of the Nile. Mm. And as they were getting ready to leave, uh, they came to the banks of it and they said, Grandpa, we're ready to take you home. And it rises up. <laughs> he didn't rise up, but you know the. Yeah. the, the and, they, and they took his bones home to be buried wow. uh, yeah. in his homeland. Yeah. Good things come from Africa. I keep telling you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so the 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 other thing I that made, immediately made me think of is I once heard that the um, the stewards at Oxford. Uh, when they have to repair a beam in the ceiling of these ancient academic halls, uh, will cut down a tree to make the beam for the ceiling and immediately plant another one to be used 400 years in the future where the, the beam needs beam. to be replaced wow, again. Wow, that's amazing. And that is stewardship right there. That's so, amazing. Yeah. Right? Four so th- there we get Jacob as the model for that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so another interpretation of this wood that we're not entirely sure what it is. It can also be related, you could read it as being related to the word uh, shetut, which means folly. Hmm. 
And so the Hasidim, living about 150 years ago, say that this is because the whole point of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle, is to change and to transform the folly of materialism, the belief that it's the things that matter, into the folly of holiness, into a commitment to the divine, mm -hmm. uh, into a commitment to transform things from the way that they are right now to the way that they should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so again, another one of these reads that you get when you notice the uh, problematics of the Hebrew that you lose in the translation. Well, it's an interesting read for here because, um, frankly, this description seems pretty materialistic. Yeah, right. right? Like this is a, this is very specific about what the material construction of this tabernacle should be like. So, in the way that our churches and synagogues look and feel, and the aesthetic of it is certainly important. But the flip side is how often that can become the focus of what yeah. we're doing rather than what happens within those walls. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or how or those walls change walls, us. Yeah. No matter when we leave. Yeah. Okay. And then I'm thinking of a scripture and I'm sorry, I don't know the reference, but there was a time when they were in the temple and somebody talked about how beautiful the temple was and then Christ mm -hmm. spoke. Mm -hmm. about that that's only temporary yeah mm -hmm. in three days yeah so that's we'll don't, don't focus on the things yeah yeah yep. so in other words to build on what you just said they were looking at the, at the ordinary building mm -hmm. the temple is not ordinary but the mud and all those things but Jesus was pointing them to what is holy yes huh. right yes. Yeah, so. mm -hmm. right you know, we have something similar in Judaism when it comes to weddings. We've been talking about weddings today. Uh, so Jewish women, traditionally at least, would have a veil during the wedding, and most people assume that this comes from the story uh, of Rebecca and Leah and yeah. marrying the right bride or the wrong bride or that, right? Uh, and actually what it comes from is a tradition that says on a wedding we can focus too much on the joining of two physical mm -hmm. bodies mm -hmm. and that the whole point is that we mm -hmm. are joining together two souls. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. um, and so the veil is there. You said, what, so why does the woman have to... Why doesn't the groom have to wear a veil? Why doesn't the groom wear a veil? I think this is how it should be. <laughs> um, right? As 21st century people, we yeah. can make that critique and it's an yeah. important critique. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, interesting. Someday, probably some some couple will both wear veils too, right? That's probably not far in the future. Yeah, so. yeah. You know, a, a lot of couples now choose not to have either partner wear the veil okay. for exactly the reasons of sexism. But it would be an interesting thing to begin to reclaim uh, some of these traditions for both partners. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. I just heard a description that has stuck with me that. Oftentimes we get lost in a sort of feminism that says women can become honorary men, mm. right? So we stop with all of the veils and the things like this, but it's a, yeah. right? It's, it's, sometimes we stop there, yeah. um, but opening up these rituals to partners of all sorts, it's a different model. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, was there one last explanation, too, of the, of the wood from oh, Midrash Rabbah? Yes, from this we derive a tradition that regardless of which wood we think it is, we know for sure it is not the wood of a fruit tree. <laughs> uh, and from this we have a tradition that says that fruit trees should not be cut down to build things with them. Hmm. That fruit trees should always remain so that someone else can come and take nourishment from them as well. 
uh, whereas once you cut that tree down, it can only provide the physical structure. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, not something we pay much attention to in, in our world today. I'd no. Say. Um, okay. So what first were we on? 16. All right. Uh, anyone want to read? or? Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame, and a cubic and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. So shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle, 20 frames for the south side, and 40 bases of silver you shall make under the 20 frames. Two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. Lots of physical descriptions. Yeah. And for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, 20 frames, and there are 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle, westward, you shall make six frames. And you shall make two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear. They shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top, at the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them. They shall form the two corners. And there shall be eight frames, and with bases of silver, Sixteen bases, two bases under one frame, and two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. The middle bar, halfway up the frames, Shall run from end to end. So the rabbis ask a question about this middle bar, too. Okay. Because they say the middle bar is longer than cedars grow. Huh. Oh. So where did that come from? Well, it was obviously a California cedar. <laughs> <laughs> the giant redwoods. Very good. Very good. Their answer is that this was miraculously found in the middle of the desert. Uh-huh. There we go. <laughs> what do you do if you can't answer the question? It was a miracle. <laughs> there it was. Um, so... Well, actually, Linda, do you want to just finish reading this little bit through verse 30, and then I have a couple questions to ask. So where do I... Where 28, do I, I think, is where you... 28 is where I stopped. I think so. You shall overlay the frames with the gold, and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars, and you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. So another reminder that this is not just a description, right? It's not just an IKEA uh, uh, project. We're getting here it does come from Sinai. Yeah. Okay. Right. Right. So the 
This is the IKEA manual from from Sinai. Yes. This is- <laughs> yes. Okay, I understand. So here's my question. Um, this is a lot of wood. Lot of so I was thinking, right, like this tabernacle was a tent and it was easy to carry through the wilderness. Hauling this around is a chore. Yeah. Huge chore. Yeah. This is a temporary structure. Yeah, this is... Over and over and over again. Right, right. This is a temporary structure made of lots and lots of wood, which must take time to set up. So, yeah, so it's worth remembering too, you know, I think oftentimes we imagine the 40 years in the wilderness as 40 years of trekking through the wilderness. Uh, that really we're dealing with populations that will often stay for months and months at a time in a spot and then move on. Okay. Uh, So we're talking about something akin to refugee camps, probably. Uh, Right, we are talking about a group of refugees who are camping out in the wilderness. Uh, And so these are oftentimes semi-permanent structures that were designed to be temporary. Okay. Um, right? Um, we know how often refugees end up living the entirety of their lives in semi-permanent okay. structures that are supposed to be temporary. Yeah. Mm. How often do they worship in this tabernacle? Is this like a like once a week? No, no, no. This should be a constant process. So they were always worshiping in the tabernacle. When it's up and running, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly like the temple itself, where there are multiple sacrifices offered every day, uh, optional sacrifices, set sacrifices. There's an order of the priests. There's a process. Yeah. yeah. So this is uh, right at the beginning of the, the Gospel of Luke. Zechariah is part of He's a priest of the temple, mm-hmm. and I think there are 24, are there 24 groups of priests? Yeah, you're going to lose me here. Okay, yeah. anyway, but it's like his turn by lot to go and offer incense in, in the Holy of Holies. Um, yes. I mean, priest is a career, but it's also a caste. Right. Uh, because the only way to be a priest is if your father was a priest. Right. Okay, so... So you not only have this tabernacle moving through the wilderness, but you have all of these uh, Levites mm-hmm. who are priests. And Levite is a tribe as well. Right. Uh, and truly is a tribe. Actually, there, there are still Jews. Uh, my family is one of them who claim to descend from the Levites. And there's a genetic test that you can do that there, there are Kohen genes. Kohen is the word we use for priests. Okay. Levite. Yeah. Which what we would Kohen? Like C O H E N, is that where that? Yeah, that's from? where it comes from. Exactly. Oh, okay. Any any Jew who has a last name of Cohn, Cohen, Khan, uh, or Silver, I don't know where that one gets connected <laughs> in. Uh, their family at least claims to be descendants of the priestly class. Okay. So you let me finish the story you were telling about Zechariah. Yeah, yeah, listen, Zechariah. Uh, yeah, as he was burning the incense. Yeah, right. That was when he had the message mm-hmm. that uh, his wife Elizabeth will have a son, mm-hmm. and he was like surprised and probably doubted and said, "How could this be? We, we old." Mm-hmm. And then, and. The, Angel told him, well, this is going to happen, but you will not be able to speak until that happens. And that was what gave us who? John the Baptist. Yeah. 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 So when John the Baptist was born, uh, was when they the family gathered, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that, about naming ceremony, and they wanted to name the child. Yeah. But since Zechariah could not talk, they had to bring a plate, mm-hmm. and he wrote there, 
what the name is. Yeah, his name is John. I just want to Interesting. Yeah, yeah, I just want to finish that story huh. so that people will... Right, and so these tropes, obviously, Zechariah and Elizabeth are old, just like Abraham and Sarah. Sarah, yeah. Right? Like, it's a repetition of these biblical yeah. tropes taking place within the Second Temple, which is the this tabernacle, essentially, but done in stone rather than acacia wood and fabric. Yeah. So, okay. So all of it is laying right here. Um, let's finish this chapter. I think. Yeah. Uh, verse thirty-one. Verse thirty-one. Does somebody want to read or Father John? Do you want to read? There we go. Wait, wait, Starting thirty-one. Right and there. that's it. Oh, that's okay. it. Well, you, the, it continues on the other page. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'll read thirty-one, and you shall make a cut a cotton of indigo and purple and so this curtain sorry to interrupt uh ends up being rather famous in christian scriptures also it is right this is the curtain the parochet that uh is separating out the holy of holies in the temple itself mm-hmm. uh, and actually it's modeled we're told uh, by the rabbis on a curtain that was held that the nobility would have in front of them so that the commoners couldn't come and hmm. get too close to the king. Uh, but, of course, yeah, I'll let you tell the story from... When Jesus dies on the cross, the uh, curtain in the temple is torn in two. So yes. this is it. <laughs> this is that curtain. Right. So which means we can enter the whole place. Yes, that separation between God and humanity. Meaning of the holy of the holy. So the, uh, the temple, or even this Mishkan here, the traveling temple... Uh, was, right, there's this outer courtyard where everyone could come in. Uh, in that area, if you go to Jerusalem today, is what you're looking at when you look at the Dome of the Rock, the courtyard around the Dome of the Rock. Uh, then there would be the building itself, the temple. Within the temple, there would be a central room that would be the Holy of Holies. And within that room is the Ark that holds the Tablets of the Covenant. And we're told that uh, that room was so holy that only the high priest could enter, yes. and only once a year on the Day of Atonement, what we now call Yom Kippur. Uh, and since only the high priest could enter in, there was even a tradition that the priest would have a rope tied around his leg in case he died or fainted while in there, they could pull him out wow. without entering in. Yep. So I misspoke before then. Zechariah could not have been actually offering incense in the Holy of Holies. He had to be in a different part of the Some temple. part of the temple. Some other part yeah. of the temple. Sacrifice, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, right, this is a constant process that's happening, and it's a cast of people who have their careers doing this. Because the other important piece about being a priest is you're not allowed to own land. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Uh, right, and I think this is not so different from why the Catholic Church said the priests can't get married. Right, if priests can have families in a traditional sense, they can acquire enormous wealth uh, by using the prestige of uh, the temple or the church or whatever. Joel Olstein, we're looking at you. Yeah. <laughs> um, right, no, this is exactly the idea. Uh, and so the Catholic Church says you can't have kids, which is right. one way of preventing that from being passed generationally. Uh, in the Jewish tradition simply says that the priestly class always has to be dependent on the other classes. Uh, they, they're the only ones who can offer the sacrifice, but they also aren't allowed to ever own land. Mm-hmm. This is not true anymore. 
Okay. Okay. So you can own a house now as a rabbi. You okay. can own a house as a rabbi, but a rabbi is not a priest. That's right. There's you can own no a house connection. as a as a Levite. As a Levite, yes. Yeah. Um, there are certain restrictions that still apply, though. Levites traditionally don't go into cemeteries. Really? Uh, oftentimes, not even for their own closest relatives. Interesting. So there will be uh, 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 right outside the gates of the cemetery. Oftentimes, now they'll have like a closed caption TV that the person can watch on. So we, uh, someone, if the microphone didn't pick it up, just ask, why not? Yeah. Um, so the idea is that the priests should be in a state of ritual purity and the single greatest contaminant for ritual purity is the presence of a dead body. Uh, because remember anytime you encounter, uh, at least within the Jewish tradition, purity and impurity, impurity is almost always caused from bodily fluids. Uh, so uh, menstruation for women causes impurity. Seminal uh, emission for men causes impurity. Uh, significant bleeding causes impurity, right? Anytime that the body has fluids that are coming out in not a standard way, uh, or at least not in sort of your, your typical day-to-day way, uh, it causes this impurity. Now, impurity has no moral claim. There's nothing wrong about you when you're impure. You're just not capable of performing the priestly services. And so a priest should be held to a higher standard is the idea. Uh, this is not an observance that I keep. Right, right. Yeah. Well, and But many do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know that I could practically as a rabbi. Right? How would I help to officiate at a funeral? Is that based on age? What do you mean? Traditions versus... You know, contemporary thought and... Uh, age, type of Judaism, yeah, yeah, yeah. all sorts of things, okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, let's finish it, John. Okay. I uh, will talk about purple and crimson and uh, twisted linen design, uh, designer's uh, work. It shall be made with... Cherum, cherubim, the angels. Mm-hmm. Wow! And you shall set on the four acacias post overlaid with gold, and their what's that? Hooks, uh-huh. gold. Hmm. How's, how's that possible, sir? Explain that to me. What do you mean? That is, they shall set it on the four acacias. Four posts of acacia yeah. wood. Yeah. And the, these posts would be overlaid with gold. Mm-hmm. And there would be a set of hooks that the curtains could hang on, and those two would be golden. Okay. Okay. All right. You can continue. Okay. Um... 33? 33, yeah. Does somebody want to finish this off? And you shall hang the veil from the clasp, and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. So there you go. The holy of holies, right? The Hebrew is uh, uh, Kodesh HaKodeshim. So you can hear that same word, Kodesh, Kodeshim, holy of holies. It's Kodesh, Kodeshim. And you shall set the table aside the veil, outside the veil, and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle, opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side, 
you should make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. That's elaborate. Yes. And that's our chapter. Yeah, yeah, quite elaborate, right? You really yes. could go and make this. And people have gone and made this. Uh, and we'll put up some pictures on the website uh, mm -hmm. to go with this. But if you just type Exodus uh, 26 into Google and click on the little images mm -hmm. tab, mm -hmm. you'll get all sorts of really uh, elaborate pictures of what this might have looked like. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is the end of chapter 26. I will tell you, dear listeners, that chapter 27 just continues in the same vein. Uh, it's much shorter, but the end of chapter 26 does not mean that we are at the end of this of the cubits of the, yeah, of the many, many cubits. Um, so, you know, if next week, while when our podcast comes out, you decide you really need to go to the bathroom, apparently there's... <laughs> This is traditional within uh, Judaism at the synagogue. <laughs> or, or if you find yourself inspired to, to drink by listening to us, this yeah, too. Is that, I'll be free. Well, one leads to the other, frankly. Um, so thank you for listening to Lost in the Wilderness. Um, Lost in the Wilderness is made possible by the generous contribution of the... Christ Church Cathedral in the Diocese of Southern Ohio. Uh, our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album All Things Are Being Made New. Uh, Daniel, do you have anything that you want to... Uh, Beginning of Passover. Uh, Friday night. Yeah. St. Andrew's Episcopal Church. Yes. Yes, we are sponsored today. Yeah. Fine hosting of St. Andrew's Episcopal Church. Uh, it's in 1809 Rutland Avenue. <laughs> There you go. John wants you in the pews on Sundays. In, in is what Evanston I'm here. in Cincinnati, Ohio. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay, so it's the beginning of Passover. Beginning of Passover, Holy Week. Yes, yes. it is the middle of Holy Week. Uh, nice, uh, uh, I guess it's not a coincidence, but a nice merging here. Yes. No coincidence whatsoever. No coincidence. Yes, definitely a nice merging. Uh, so we will join next week for uh, uh, Lost in Wilderness Unleavened Edition. That's right. That's right. I will just be eating a bag of chocolate and drinking wine the yes. entire time oh, because wow. Lent will be over and I will be able to do all the things I haven't gotten to do for 40 days. And I'll be drinking wine and eating chocolate because it's Passover and you can't yes. eat basically anything but that. So, uh, you know. There we go. There we go. Oh, and before we end, uh, Daniel, I'm going to give you a dollar and i will now own all the leaven in your house yes you have bought all of the leaven we are set <laughs> yes all right uh and your listeners come if you can to the capstone event the colloquium which will be on april 7th at all saints new albany uh we'll see you then have a great week and thank you st andrews thank for hosting us thank you john linda lisa and katrina for being with us as we go through this study today blessings on all of you uh through the rest of this week.